The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. She was born a slave in Holly Springs, Mississippi in 1862. By the time of her death in Chicago in 1931, she had proven herself as a powerful journalist and civil rights advocate, including her anti-lynching crusade that exposed, through research and statistics, the ongoing terrorist campaign in the post-war American South. Brave woman, Frederick Douglass said, you have done your people and mine a service which can neither be weighed nor measured, end quote. Her name was Ida B. Wells. Her writing was impassioned and fearless, and she became one of the late 19th and early 20th century's great nonfiction writers. She also wrote fiction, not much, but a little, and she wrote one romantic story. It's called Two Christmas Days, A Holiday Story, and we will hear it today on The History of Literature. Hey, hello. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you so much for joining me today on the verge of yet another holiday. It seems like we were just here a week or two ago, doesn't it? Here together, getting ready for the holidays. We've done some good holiday episodes in the past. We drafted the top 10 Christmas stories of all time. We looked at James Joyce, One December, spent several episodes looking at him. He's my favorite Christmas author, thanks to the story, The Dead. We've looked at Christmas movies and stories about snow and Ebenezer Scrooge, the history of that character. Lots of good episodes are in the archive, and today is a somewhat unlikely one. I had a hard time getting my hands on it. Ida B. Wells is another American great who is barely discussed here in the States. She's considered controversial, which is ridiculous in my view. She should be celebrated everywhere in every state. She was a pioneer. Here's just one example. Police dragged her off a train after she refused to give up her seat. Sound familiar? Well, this was 71 years before Rosa Parks courageously did something similar. Ida B. Wells herself bought into some of the myths around lynching early in her life. She acknowledged later she had thought, well, if this is rape, specifically black men raping white women, perhaps going outside the law is understandable. A community's anger welling up. Maybe that's what lynching is. Unfortunate, but somewhat understandable given the the atrocity in question. But then the practice of lynching reached someone she knew. She began to investigate and she realized that her view of it The widely held view was simply false, a myth, a lie told to justify what was really happening, which was that lynching was being used to terrorize the black population and the white people who might sympathize with them. The South had lost the Civil War, slavery was ended, but racism did not die. And so Ida B. Wells said about persuading people about the the true horrors of lynching, not through argument, not by enacting a counter-myth, but through evidence. She had been a teacher early in life, which she did not 
love that profession, but she found her calling as a journalist. She had a creative and compelling voice, which she applied to a lot of different topics, writing for both white-owned and black-owned magazines and newspapers, and eventually owning one herself. But her true calling, her true strength, was in marrying that creative and compelling voice with research, facts, diligence, persistence, and ultimately, truth. The story we're going to hear is a rare piece of fiction for her. It was published in 1895 when she was in her early to mid-30s. She herself was in a romantic relationship, but that's not what interests me. What interests me is that she was also at the height of her nonfiction anti-lynching writing, the methodical collection of statistics about the lynchings, about the, she cataloged the allegations, and she supplied the evidence, or she pointed out the lack of evidence, the evidence that often was not there to support the lynchings. So why fiction at this point in her life? What was she hoping to accomplish with this story? That's one thing to listen for when you hear this story being read. Another reason I'm drawn to this story is that it gives a window into a world we don't often see, the Black South in the 1890s. This is a generation of people coming of age who have mostly grown up outside of slavery, but whose parents and grandparents had known it into adulthood. Here's a new generation. What were the young people wrestling with? What was life like for them? Where did they look for love and what obstacles needed to be overcome and what conditions were attached? What did they do for entertainment, for income, for fun? And what did they do at Christmas? That's another set of things to listen for as we hear the story. What was their world like? What was love like? And how did Christmas fit in? So... Let's take a break, hear the story, and come back with a few thoughts. All that after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. (laughs) 
Two Christmas Days, A Holiday Story by Ida B. Wells Going out to Wilson's this afternoon, George? For what? asks George. To the croquet party. You surely haven't forgotten it. By George Harry, I just had. It's too confoundedly hot to do what you have to, much less play croquet. But Mrs. Wilson would never forgive me if I didn't go. This affair is in honor of her guest, I believe. Miss, what's her name? Minton. Well, if you are going, it's time you're getting a move on you. It's past five now, said Harry, rising. Guess I'll have to, as I haven't even called on the young lady yet. It's too bad we have to play the agreeable when you don't want to. Wait a minute, I'll go up with you. And George Harris leisurely put away his law papers and was soon on the way with his friend, Harry Brown. Arriving at the home of Mrs. Wilson, they found the spacious green lawn alive with young girls in cool summer dresses, who with obliging partners were playing at croquet. Mrs. Wilson and her son, Clarence, rallied the young men on being late and introduced Harris, who knew of but had never met Miss Minton until now. "'What do you think of the visitor, George?' asked his friend as they rested on one of the rustic settees watching the players. "'Don't know,' drawled George. "'You can't tell much about girls at first sight. "'One thing, she doesn't seem to put on airs. "'I take it also that she goes in to win in everything she attempts. "'She's the only one of those girls who cares a pin about being beaten. "'See how hard she works in this heat?' and with what precision she makes her shots. The other girls are so taken up flirting with their partners, they neither know nor care when their turn comes to play. Ah, George, at your old professional habit of dissecting every character you meet in that cold, analytic fashion. Don't you see anything to admire in the woman? Yes, I see she is charmingly and becomingly dressed, a thing so few girls have the good taste to do. Harry laughed. You're a hard critic, my fastidious friend. You'll meet your match yet some day, old fellow. Then you'll rave, too, over your lady's charms without stopping to analyze her. The conversation was ended, as with a peal of laughter, Miss Minton and her partner won. Flushed with excitement and victory, she seated herself in the place vacated by Harry Brown, who went to take a hand in another game just beginning. She and George exchanged a few words, and as she rested, he looked at her more closely. She was a tall, slender, graceful girl, olive complexion, black hair, and eyes. She was not strictly beautiful, but the features were regular, and there was a nobility of expression which betokened the thinker, a clear, open countenance, with wonderful eyes, a sweet yet dignified manner. Her dress of pink muslin fitted her figure to perfection and suited her complexion admirably. She was 23 years old and was a college graduate from one of the American missionary colleges in the South. She had made so enviable a record that she was appointed a teacher in her alma mater, the first Afro-American teacher they had ever employed. She was in high spirits over her victory, and her sallies of wit interested the young man beside her. He mentally decided to see more of her. Meanwhile, twilight had fallen and it was too dark to see the wickets. 
Mrs. Wilson called, and the guests gathered round the dining room table, a laughing, happy group. While they discussed melons and ices, they chatted of everything in general and nothing in particular, as young folks will do. So you have decided to go to Oklahoma, Will? asked Mrs. Wilson during a lull in the gay badinage. Yes, ma'am, replied Will Bramlett, a tall, brown-skinned young fellow of twenty-five. I leave next week. But I can't see what you want to go away out there for. You are doing well here at your trade. Mr. Wilson says you have all the work you can do. Yes, but I want to do better. I want to live where I can have something, and a man is as free as anybody else once in my life. If Uncle Sam will give me 160 acres of land to go and get it, I'm going after it, sure. Oklahoma will never see me, laughed one of the young men. Nor me, echoed another. I admire your spirit and determination, Mr. Bramlett, said Emily Minton, speaking very quickly. What, you an Oklahoma convert, too? chorused a number of voices. Yes, I am. I have long thought our young men have not enough ambition and get up or they couldn't be content to drift along here in the South the way things are going every day. For the last half-dozen years, ever since I've been able to see clearly the causes of so much race trouble, everybody has said education would solve the problem. I have watched the young men who have left school when I was a pupil and since I became a teacher. They gave signs of the brightest promise, but the majority soon fall into a soft, easy position which affords them a living and there they vegetate, until they lose all the manhood they ever possessed. If I could have my way with them, I'd transplant them all to Oklahoma, or some place else where they would have to work, and that would develop character and strengthen manhood in them. Thank you, Miss Emily, for your endorsement, said Will Bramlett. It has given me a better determination, as the Methodist sisters say. Are you not rather hard on the young men, Miss Minton? asked George Harris. I think not, answered she. The race needs their services so much. Indeed, I think the most discouraging feature of it all is the seeming contentment under conditions which ought to stir all the manhood's blood in them. So whenever I do meet one who thinks as I do and is ambitious to be somebody, I cannot help wishing him Godspeed. If I were a man, I would join him only too quick. You might join some him anyway, Emily, said one of the young girls. Yes, indeed, and be far more acceptable as a companion, a helpmeet, Mrs. Wilson teasingly rejoined. Everybody laughed, and even Emily, who had grown very earnest, was forced to smile at this clever turning of the tables on herself. The party broke up. But George and Harry lingered in the moonlight on the veranda, talking to the home folks. George felt strangely attracted to this girl, and, walking over to where she sat, he said, watching her out of the corners of his eyes, "'Bramlett was delighted with your approval of his course, Miss Minton. You have made a conquest of him already. That's the way with you girls. You have no mercy on a fellow's heart. How many scalps have you dangling at your belt already?' Emily turned on him with a grieved, reproachful expression. You do not mean to say you think me a flirt, Mr. Harris? No, indeed. 
said he, quickly dropping his jesting tone. I think you are too noble a girl for that. George spoke so gravely and respectfully that Emily knew he meant it. Thank you, she said simply. He bade them good night and left shortly after. She is a remarkable girl, mused George as he went home. He called the next afternoon and the next. Very soon it so happened that there was no day after the sun god hid his face that George did not call by on his way home, although it was several blocks out of his way. Sometimes it was a proposed walk, oftener a drive, a few flowers, or a few minutes' conversation. Mrs. Wilson's niece was a brilliant musician, and George had a fine baritone voice, and they made splendid music these long summer evenings. Emily had the soul of a musician, with none of the musician's talent. Those evenings with the moonlight, the music, and the fragrance of the rose, the honeysuckle, and the night-blooming jessamine seemed the happiest of her life. She had become interested in this man as in no other, and she had met many in her short life. But this man, with courtly manners, general culture, and quiet yet masterful and self-contained bearing, was unlike any she had ever met. If a day passed without his coming, she was conscious of a something lacking in its pleasure. Given to self-examination, she felt that she was falling in love, and she was sure the interest was mutual. She mentally determined before yielding herself to the fascination of her feelings to know more about him. The opportunity came soon after. While downtown shopping one hot August day, they passed Harris's office. Mrs. Wilson teasingly asked Emily if she would like to call on him. She consented, and they stepped into the office only to find him absent. The room was such a disagreeable surprise to her that Emily was glad Harris was absent. It was a dingy apartment with old and rickety furniture, and the atmosphere was musty with the fumes of tobacco smoke. There was absolutely nothing to harmonize with the careful, cleanly well-dressed man she had known for nearly two months. She gave no sign but was glad when Mrs. Wilson said they would not wait. At tea table that evening, the conversation turned on Harris, and Emily inquired of Mr. Wilson how long the young lawyer had been practicing, and was told about five years. Do our people patronize him very well? You know it seems our failing never to have the same confidence in our own ability that we have in the white man's, said she. I don't think it's our people's fault this time, Miss Emily. We've all known George ever since he was a baby, and we're proud of his record at school. When he came home and opened an office, I sent him several cases and gave him some of my own work to do. He attended to them all right enough, but he didn't get up and hustle for other work. He's either too proud to do it or lacks energy, one or the other. We all feel that he's no woman that we should be hunting work for. He gets work enough to do around these magistrates' courts and now and then a case in the criminal court, and manages to make a living out of these petty cases, but he's never had a case of any special merit that has demonstrated his real ability, like that young Johnson of your town. The conversation drifted to other topics, but Emily thought she could understand some things more clearly than before. A day or so after, in a talk with Harris about mutual friends who had gone out into the world, 
he was aroused at the trenchant criticism. How merciless you are toward us poor fellows, Miss Emily, he exclaimed. Yes, indeed, she quickly replied. I have no patience with dawdlers. But you find fault with all. Are there none who merit your ladyship's favor? If not, it is because they do not measure up to their highest possibilities, said she. No? Well, you shouldn't expect them to do so at a bound. But so few seem to be even striving in that direction, Mr. Harris. That's the discouraging feature. Even Mr. Harris, who might achieve splendid success in his profession, and of course any distinction he might win, would redound to the credit of his race, does not seem ambitious to do so. She spoke gently, yet regretfully. George was silenced for a moment, but rallying immediately said, Give us a picture of your model man, Miss Emily. But where would I find a model to sit for the picture? Asked Emily playfully. Take me, said George with double meaning in his tone and a tender light in his eyes. You, asked Emily, striving hard to seem unconscious, you wouldn't do at all. There's one great objection. What is it, Emily? Eagerly asked George. Tell me, please. Not tonight, said she, shaking her head, some other time. George's musings as he walked home that night were not of the most pleasant kind. It was not the first time since he knew this girl that he had left her presence with a faint feeling of discontent with himself and surroundings. He wondered what particular flaw this keen-eyed young woman had discovered in his makeup. The thought hammered him all next day, and when wending his way homeward to dinner, he spied her in a hammock in the yard. With the liberty of a frequent visitor, he went in, and after a few words, asked her what was the fault she had found in him. She laughed musically, yet there was a tremor in her voice as she rallied him on his woman's curiosity. He persisted, telling her he had thought of it all day. Have you not hit upon it yet? I can only think of one thing, said he. Is it that I am not tall enough? Emily blushed as she saw he was thinking her objection a personal one. She felt he was on the eve of a proposal, and she thought it her duty to spare him the refusal, if possible. She laughed again to cover her embarrassment and asked what height would have to do with the model man. It's a question of deeds, not physical proportions, Mr. Harris, she remarked gravely. He took her hand and in a voice trembling with emotion, besought her to tell him what it was. She thought a moment. You promise not to be angry? I promise. Well, Mr. Harris, I am almost sorry I spoke, said she. But since you will have it, if I were asked the principal drawback to your becoming a model man, I should say it is a love of liquor. He dropped her hand and turned away. After a moment, he said in a constrained tone, May I ask how Miss Minton has become so wise as to my habits? I have detected the smell of it on your breath, answered Emily, flushing as she rapidly continued. 
I hope you won't be angry, my friend, but I have wondered that you seem to have so much leisure. I was in your office one day and was struck with the general poverty of your surroundings. Mr. Johnson, of my own town, has as fine an office as there is in the city and has made a name for successful practice in the criminal and chancery courts. He has not your education, nor has he been practicing so long. For a man of such brilliant parts, I thought there must be a reason for such contentment, such a seeming lack of energy. I have concluded this is the reason, but I should not have risked your displeasure by saying so if you had not urged me. The race needs the best service our young manhood can give it, my friend, and it seems so wrong to divert any part of it to the practice of a habit which can bring you no credit and gratify no noble ambition. George's mind was in a conflicting whirl of emotions. He knew she spoke the truth, and yet with all his feelings of anger and mortification, he seemed to feel that this peerless girl was slipping away from him. He wanted her to think well of him, and forgetful of the French po proverb, he who excuses, accuses, said eagerly, But this habit of mine never interferes with my business, Miss Emily. Indeed, it rather helps me. I am the only Afro-American at this bar, and I must have some stimulus to help me through the difficulties the wall of prejudice throws in my way. Besides, had I wished to appear other than I am, I might have kept this knowledge from you. But it isn't I who is to be considered, said Emily, struggling for composure. It is the race, Mr. Harris, and what you owe it. This habit may not have seriously interfered before, but it will, if indulged, render you less ambitious to excel, if nothing more. For us as a race, in our present position, stagnation means death. The men who are best fitted for it should be the leaders. Those who lead others must be slaves to no unworthy passion or habit. The model man, my model man, is in deed and truth, in body and mind, master of himself. As the low, earnest tones ceased to vibrate, Emily extended her hand, and George pressed it warmly, saying, Thank you, Miss Emily. No girl ever talked to me that way before. I have paid your common sense a compliment in that I have risked your displeasure to be your friend, and you do not know how I appreciate your manner of taking it, said she. You know I go away tomorrow, and as you have made the summer so pleasant for me, I should like us to part friends. Then you will let me write to you? asked George. She gave her consent, and on the morrow went home. George wrote her before the week was out. Throughout the fall, he sent her letters regularly telling of his struggles. He understood as fully as if she had told him in so many words that if he would win her, he must make himself worthy. And he manfully withstood the jeers of his friends on his refusal to drink. Emily answered promptly and rejoiced that the latent forces in him were at last roused to action. Her love for him and faith in him grew stronger with every letter. She looked forward to a promised visit during the holidays with much anticipation. 
George arrived in the city New Year's Eve, was met by old friends who had arranged a stag for him at the home of the friend with whom he was to stop. He was tempted and yielded for the first time in four months and drank the more for his past abstinence. In the early morning hours, he was helped to bed by the boys who all voted him a jolly good fellow. He arose late next day with a terrible headache and guilty conscience. He was to call on Emily that afternoon, and he knew she would discover his condition. With a mental comment on being soft enough to deter to a woman's whim, he obeyed the craving for a stimulant and took several drinks during the day. When he presented himself at the house, Emily went forward to meet him with a beaming face and outstretched hand and presented my friend, Mr. Harris, to the several callers in the room. Catching the smell of liquor, she looked at him searchingly, and as she realized his condition, felt as if turned to stone. The heat and Emily's constraint had their effect on George. He talked volubly and loudly, and the fumes of brandy were distilled throughout the room. Emily maintained her composure, till the other guests had gone. Then, without a word, she broke down and wept convulsively. Shame, surprise, indignation, and mortification each struggled for the mastery. No one had ever dared to come in her presence in such condition before, and to receive this humiliation at the hands of the man she loved and in the presence of witnesses to whom she had spoken so highly of him, what must they think of her, Miss Minton, the exclusive, to think that after all these years of choosing, her heart should go out to a drunkard? George came and stood before her. Tears for me, my darling. I am not worthy of them. I came here to ask you to marry me. But after such a weak, miserable spectacle, I know it is useless. I do not deserve even your forgiveness. Farewell. He left the house and the city that same evening. He wrote Emily a long letter of apology, telling her how dearly he loved her and that her influence could save him from his weakness and make a man of him. He told her how he came to yield to his weakness without sparing himself and cast himself on her mercy. Emily wept over this letter. Her heart pled for the writer, but she could not get the consent of her judgment to risk her happiness in the hands of a man whom she could not trust, who was not master of himself. Though it cost her a great deal to say so, she did it after a night of anguish. Shortly after, she heard that he had wound up his business suddenly and gone west, and then she heard no more for two years. One day in November, she found a letter on her return from school in a strange handwriting. It read as follows. Oklahoma City, O.T., November 15th, 1892. Dear Miss Minton, You may not remember me, and you must pardon the liberty I take but for the sake of a friend one risks much. I am the one you so generously encouraged when I declared my intention to come to Oklahoma nearly three years ago. 
I came and have never regretted it. Nearly two years ago, my friend George Harris joined me, and we have been together ever since. In our lonely hours, he has talked much of you, and I know how dear you are to him. Since that fatal New Year's Day, you see, he has told me all. Not a drop of liquor has passed his lips. He says it lost him the only woman he ever loved, and he never wants to look at it again. He thinks you have never forgiven him, and says he doesn't blame you. He has built up a fine practice in the territory by hard work, and now he is very ill with pneumonia. He has the best attention, but he does not care to get well. He has lost all hope, and says nothing when he is at himself, but when he is out of his mind, he is always calling your name. He does not know I have written this letter, but I know a word from you would do him more good than medicine. Won't you write him a word, Miss Emily, and save the best friend I have on earth? And oblige, yours, Will Bramlett. Emily was crying when she finished, but they were happy tears. Without a word, she sat down at the desk, and this is the letter she sent him. My own dear love, a little bird has brought me the news that you are a very sick man and that you do not get well because you do not seem to care to live. If I tell you that I wish you to live for my sake, will you try to get well? I have always loved you, and since you would neither write to me nor ask me again to marry you, I am going to make use of my leap year prerogative and ask you to marry me. As the new year is near at hand and I have no gift to send, now that I know where you are, I have been wondering if you would accept me as a new year's gift and if you will be able to come for me by the new year. I have a fancy I would like to give myself to you on that day. Will you come? Yours, Emily. When Bramlett read this letter to the sick man, it was Thanksgiving Day, and tears of thankfulness stole down his wasted cheeks. Can you pray, Will? he asked. Then kneel down here and thank God for my happiness. A look of great content spread over his face. Write her a letter, Will, and tell her I'll be there on New Year's Day if God spares my life. He called for food, and with the precious letter pressed to his heart, he fell asleep with the first smile Will had seen on his face. The letter, which had been more than medicine, he had Will read every day until he was able to read it himself, and having something to live for, he gradually got better. George wrote to Emily every day, and she sent loving, cheerful messages in return, urging him to be careful of his health. He had never been a demonstrative man, but when he was able to write, he poured out his soul to her and consecrated the life he said she had given back to him to renewed effort for individual and race advancement. With you by my side, he wrote, to cheer life's pathway and strengthen my zeal, life which has been so dreary will indeed be enriched and ennobled. Emily handed in her resignation to take effect with the holidays. On New Year's Day, directly after the service, 
these two, George Harris and Emily Minton, stood before the altar and pronounced the words, for better or for worse, to unite them until death do us part. Then, hand in hand, they went out to the boundless west to make a home together, in which love and confidence reigned supreme. Okay, we are back. Let's start with the first question. What did this nonfiction journalist, a great one, hope to accomplish with this fictional story? Well, we don't know from the text alone, of course. And as far as I know, she didn't leave behind a personal account that might tell us, but we can guess, or I should say we can see, we can interpolate, educated guess from what we see in the story. Obviously, there's a romance here and a happy ending. And to some extent, Ida B. Wells seems to be hoping to give people, the readers of her newspaper, some hope for the holidays. But there is also an awful lot of stern discussion. There's a lot of steel in the main character's personality as she calls for people to live up to their potential out of self-respect, but also out of respect for their race. There's a strong feeling of let's not give in to what the stereotypes are. There's a lot of foresight there. It's hard to go against the tide when let's I'm going to mix metaphors here. It's hard to go against the tide when the deck is stacked against you. It's hard to hold firm in that storm on those waters. But Ida B. Wells, clearly, it seems to me, wants that to be done. Let's get that much right, she's saying. Let's do what we can while we're trying to change the system. In her nonfiction at this time, she was pointing out the horrors of lynching. In her fiction, she's acknowledging that lynching has consequences, racism has consequences. There's no denying that the board here is tilted, but she also seems to be saying, I don't have time for nonsense. There's no room for nonsense in this world. There's too much pain and injustice to treat life as a triviality. The other thing I asked you to listen for was, how does this society treat Christmas? What's it like? Lavish affairs full of parties and food and gifts, somber occasions full of candlelit reflections, singing carols, trees. Do they go to church? Any traditions? Well, all that was a bit of a faint on my part, and I'm going to excuse that by saying the title of the story is a bit of a faint as well. Two Christmas Days, a holiday story. There's no Christmas in this story. It's not mentioned at all. We get the season. We get Thanksgiving. It's clearly the holidays. We get New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. But Christmas is not there. It's a hole in the calendar of this story. Now, I think the answer to that, why is that? I think that there's a gap between the title and the story. And I think the most likely answer is that it was somewhat inadvertent. Maybe the editor wanted a Christmas story and this one was close and... And so either the author or the editor sort of sold it as such. Maybe Christmas was the holiday originally used and it got revised to New Year's for some reason and, and they didn't change the title. It's not such a big deal. It's not like you really feel cheated 
You feel like you're in the holidays. That works. It's the holiday spirit. It doesn't have to have Christmas. I, I don't know if this discrepancy has ever been explained, but I don't know that it really matters. But because it's there, such an interesting discrepancy. It's pretty rare that you have a title that says two Christmas days. It's very specific. And then no Christmas in the story. Because of that gap, I can imagine my way into some interesting territory. I think a Christmas story without a Christmas, it made me think about the holidays that we have. The three holidays we have as part of our holiday season, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Christmas is kind of the king of this, at least for those who celebrate, and at least for kids. It's so full of presents and traditions, Santa. And of course, for practicing Christians, it's big for another reason as well, the birth of Jesus. The biggest day of the year, unless maybe your biggest day is Easter. When I mentioned the past Christmas shows we've done, I should have mentioned probably the best one we've done, the interview with Stephen Mitchell and his book about the nativity story. Stephen Mitchell described the story in the Gospels as a compressed narrative. And his book imagines what's left out of that narrative, but what must have occurred or what is likely to have occurred, given what we know about the historical time period. The compressed narrative is what gives us room to explore, to fill in. A lot of what we think of as the nativity story has come just from that, from people filling in those gaps. And so it is with this story. Why not Christmas? Why does it not appear? Maybe we can't know that, but we can fill in the gaps. We can determine what it does for us, for us readers here in the 21st century, that a long ago story bears the name Two Christmas Days, the holiday story, and then doesn't even mention Christmas. Part of me thinks, well, who cares? It doesn't really matter. Could have been called Two Decembers, a holiday story, and gotten the job done. Or New Year's Thanksgiving and New Year's Eve, something like that. My mind says that, but the truth is my heart is somewhere else. My heart says... This is how Christmas feels sometimes when all is not right with the world. We're used to this with Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is famously atrocious for unhappy people, singles who don't want to be single, recent divorcees, other casualties of love. Valentine's Day puts that all right up in your face. Well, Christmas is similar when there's war, when there's suffering, when there's hunger, when there's reason to lose hope. The day works against you. You try to be generous, but it feels like that's not enough. You try to be happy, and sometimes it isn't there. Thanksgiving doesn't put that burden on you. Be thankful you're alive. Be thankful for food in your stomach. That's what the day is for. New Year's is the same. Doesn't put that burden on you. Time to wrap up the old. If it was a good year, you celebrate it. If it's been a bad year, you think, thank heavens, it's over. And either way, you can look forward to things improving in the future. But Christmas is a day that is supposed to be filled with love and hope and promise and excitement. And if it's not, the world seems cold. If it's not full of light, on that day, the world feels especially dark. 
maybe the story jumps over Christmas because those the stakes can't be raised that high. It makes the pain of that first Christmas in the story too bitter. And the thrill of the second Christmas would be too sweet. Maybe the story, I doubt this was intentional, but this is how my mind is working today. Maybe the story is saying, as the rest of the story suggests, we have work to do in this world before we can include Christmas in a story like this. We can't wait for Christmas to fix everything, and we can't hope Christmas will be the narcotic to make us trick ourselves into believing that everything is okay when it isn't. We have 364 days of work ahead of us after Christmas, and if that's not enough to get things right, to end war and alleviate hunger and address the pernicious injustices of society, then we don't have 364 days to work to get things right. We have 365. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Ida B. Wells, someone to admire and to emulate, too. She was an amazing person. Makes me glad to be a part-time Chicagoan where you can drive on Ida B. Wells Drive. We should do more to remember her and honor her. Was she a great fiction writer? I think she could have been. This story isn't a masterpiece, but it's a good start. If she had gone down that path, I'm sure she could have written some masterpieces for us. I enjoyed the story. I learned from it. And as I, you can hear from my commentary, it made me think time to be a little bit no-nonsense myself. Am I feeling, I'm feeling good about being inside, reading it and talking about it. We have freezing rain today. Maybe it'll turn to snow by Christmas. And although my kids are no longer excited enough to wake me up hours before I'm ready, they're now more excited to sleep in That's their gift. That's their present they receive, which is okay. That's good for those young bodies. Lots of rest needed and not a care in the world. Those moments of fretting, if not outright panic, that I feel are moments that are reserved for parents and others who are farther along the path of adult cares and woes. Where was I headed with this? Although my kids aren't in that mode of checking the snow on the porch for Rudolph tracks. I do love Christmas. It does make me feel sentimental and nostalgic and also full of hope. I hope you feel the same or that you have another holiday or day that can do that for you. It's the day or the eve when Scrooge saw four ghosts. My ghosts are with me too. They're not scary. They're my loved ones. They're smiling and they're saying, I'm glad you have the memories you have, Jack Wilson. Now go forth and make a few more. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.